0: This is Talking Cities, where we meet the people making cities brilliant. Today on Talking Cities, I'm joined by two outstanding architects and urban designers. Now, firstly, let me introduce to you Dr. Kayvan Karimi. Now, Kayvan is an architect and urban designer with more than 20 years of international experience. He studied architecture in Tehran before moving to London to complete his doctorate at University College, where he continues to lecture. He is currently a director at Space Syntax, where he focuses on creating thriving spaces that combine the right balance of interconnectedness movement and scale alongside k is chris choa who has recently been appointed as the new chairman of the urban land institute in the united kingdom chris is also Aecom's director of cities and urban development here in london chris studied fine art at yale before earning a master's degree in architecture from harvard over his 30-year career he has led dozens of major projects advising on large-scale engineering and architectural endeavors helping to shape many of the world's great urban destinations. His recent work includes advising on major urban renewal projects in China and the Middle East and in India, where Prime Minister Narendra Modi is leading a major initiative to develop smart cities across the country. Welcome to Talking Cities. It's great to be here in London. Now, on Talking Cities, we always ask our guests, we open every conversation with one question. I'd like to ask you, Kavan, firstly, what is your favourite city around the world and why?
1: Okay, I, I might be a bit biased here, but my favourite city is London.
0: Oh, I thought you were going to say Tehran. Yeah. Um,
1: Tehran is my second <laughs> favourite city because I was born there and grew up there. But uh, London, I think, is, is, is a really unique city. It, it brings many different layers of history and activity and interesting things together and generates something that I would say uh, is, is a productive, is a sustainable, and is a very,
0: very attractive built environment. Mm. Do, you th- do you think that the population here, it's grown rapidly? I mean, it's not growing as fast as Australia, the population, but this is a mega city. Does that inhibit livability in any way, or do you think that just adds a layer of richness to, to the city? I mean, it took me an hour and a half to get from the airport today. I think that was just through inexperience. I think this this is the problem with any large city you and you
1: know at certain phases in fact uh, london was bigger in the past hmm. and then it declined a little bit and wow. now it's growing again yeah so yes i think this is a a a balance between Problems created by a very large system, hmm. but there are also benefits hmm. Uh, hmm. that you get from that. You you get this kind of international centre, hmm. an amazing mix of everything, uh, diversity, and other things that make London very successful.
0: And even uh, even where we are right now, so for our listeners, we're in a, a district called Oldgate. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Is that is this the financial end of town, or what sort of end of town is it?
2: This is a very interesting end of town. This is sort of the eastern edge of the center. Mm. And London, like a lot of uh, cities worldwide, has grown over time. Interestingly, it's grown towards its airports, mm. uh, like all, all cities, which typically is out towards the west. But uh, for all sorts of reasons, a lot of them having to do with youth and emerging industries, a lot of the growth east is starting to fill in after many, many decades of preferred growth out towards the west and it's mm. predominantly younger populations are moving out here uh, a lot of immigrant populations are moving uh, out here uh, and it's a fascinating part of the city it's one of the densest part of the cities as well this is a city that is also one of my favorite cities that has so much history that has been the site of so much human activity and it's a very new city but also a very old city at the mm. same time mm. and it's literally one layer on top of the other layer, as, as K Van has mentioned. And you look at those high rises, you squint, and you can see the boundary of a Roman city.
0: And was that Roman city defined by walkability? Well, it was defined, like all
2: Roman cities, by uh, a crossing and, and a mm. wall. Mm. Uh, but the, the, the Roman city extended out over uh, what is now London Bridge. Mm. Uh, to Fields, which is now where the Shard is right Mm. now. Mm. So you could say it was defined by walkability, but all great cities are defined by walkability, and they've always been defined that way.
1: Some of the um, main roads are... You know Roman roads, but the rest of it is a very organic structure, which mm. has evolved in the past mm. fifteen
0: hundred years. Yeah, I mean, it's not. It's not. Like, there's no grid here, is there in London? Um, some
1: parts, yes, because mm. the the city grew out of the city of London, the the old city. Some in some parts of it, like Bloomsbury area, for instance, you find mm. a bit of rectilinear grid. Mm. Mm. But no, the rest of the greater London is, again, organic, linking all these villages, Mm. old villages together into Mm. a a system of centers and sub-centers organically connected to each other. The way I look at it is um, what we call pervasive centrality. It's a system of centrality that you find a major center or a series of bigger centers such as the city of london then you have the west end area and on top of that you have a series of smaller centers that are in a very interesting relationship mm. with the bigger centers yeah. and that creates a network of centers yeah. and the kind of different activities and uses they are distributed according to the nature of mm. these centers mm. So it's. I think uh, that kind of centrality gives uh, uh, another level of attraction to London. W-
0: were they planned, or was it org- as you said? Was it organic?
1: No, it was totally organic. Yeah. It's, you know, the, 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 these places they evolved to take. <laughs> so how
0: do we cr- how do we create this place now? Such <laughs> that's the challenge. That's a challenge before us, isn't it?
2: Well, you know, it's uh, coming from grid world. Myself, I grew up in Manhattan. Mm. I lived in many gridded cities. I find London unknowable. Mm. And uh, that's what actually makes it very exciting. Mm. I can barely find my way to work every morning because (laughs) it's so complicated for me. And I've lived here, you know, almost uh, 13, 14 years. But it is that wayfinding that is not necessarily following rules of geometry that makes it so interesting. Mm. And uh, everyone who lives in London knows about something called the knowledge. Mm. And the knowledge is something that black cab drivers have And uh, in the age before GPS, uh, Mm. black cab drivers had to memorize thousands of streets and pathways and and networks. They were kind of the pre-digital version Mm. of space syntax, the kind of algorithmic strategy that Kvan and and his practice and his teaching is focused on. Mm. But it, it is knowing how the centers come together. Not just where the centers are, but how they connect to each other that creates the excitement for the city, the chance for both uh, planned and unplanned encounters. Mm. And that's really why we're in cities in the first place. Yeah, totally.
1: I had the same problem when I came here. I I grew up in Tehran, which is a a great city again. And uh, wayfinding becomes difficult because you're following a different set of rules and logic. Mm. But when you get used to it, you know, these organic cities, they Mm. have a a different pattern of wayfinding. Mm. You know, for instance, in Manhattan, if you miss one of these turns, you can take the next one or the one after and still you find your way. Mm. Here, that's not the case. Mm. You really need to stick with Mm. the structure of Mm. the city, which Mm. is uh, more about how these centers are connected to each other. Mm. And these are kind of more prominent Roots hmm. hmm. with activities and everything so if you stick with those roots and don't try to follow geometry hmm. you find your way more easily hmm. but if you want to kind of use your uh, kind of old geometrical wayfinding patterns hmm. then you can easily get lost it's a little yeah. bit
2: like in star wars you have to just let the force be with you, <laughs> you and you have to take your cues from something other than the cartesian grid chris i didn't ask you what your favorite city was. oh my what? favorite city well I have to say, having lived in London now, I I would say that London is my favorite, but it wasn't always true. When Mm. I first moved to London, I had been already uh, vaccinated by large, dense gridded cities like Manhattan. Mm. Uh, You know, I also spent some time uh, growing up working in places like Beijing, perhaps granddaddy of, of gridded cities, and even places like Shanghai that have sort of hybrids between grids and non grids and uh, when i first came to london i hated it i hated it so much because no one did anything they spent a lot of time talking the buildings weren't tall enough there weren't enough people on the streets at three o'clock in the morning Mm. and maybe it's a product of living here longer getting older but now i find all those things charming Mm. i like the idea that people will probably talk and debate before they make a decision that uh, somehow they have managed to find ways to get busy and not busy together Mm. without necessarily making zoning as of right. And I like the incredible mix of people who come together without zoning Mm. in uh, being zoned Mm. in a conventional Mm. kind of Cartesian way. Mm. So I I used to think Shanghai was my favorite city and now uh, and of course, my my hometown Manhattan, but I'm reluctantly coming around to realize that London
0: uh, wins. Van. I want to talk a little bit about technology and how you use technology to understand, decode cities, to understand how people move um, around cities, how they use space, and how we can use that to our advantage when we're thinking about what works well in a city and what doesn't work well in a city.
1: Yeah, the space syntax technology started with very simple concepts, mm. such as you know, how people see or how people move. And if you use these basics to create a network that you can somehow analyze as an aggregate model of behavior and activity in the city you have a technology really to look at not only accessibility of places from each other but what those accessibilities mean hmm. so you can start linking it with things such as density land use transport systems and so on and so forth so the technology basically this is space syntax technology is based on network analysis and the elaboration of network analysis with using extra layers of information.
0: So for our listeners, a a network can be anything. It can be a pedestrian network, a a subway network. Correct. I mean, the, uh, the, the, the base
1: of the model is what we call the spatial network, which is the
0: spatial network, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's how spaces are connected to each yeah. other, basically. And mm. these are public spaces, spaces yeah. that are used by people. Now, one way of doing it is to look at how people move mm. through the network, which is normally... straight lines based on the longest line of sight. So if you drive a a series of straight lines through the system, you get a simple network Mm. that is meaningful, because it's it's about how people navigate through the Mm. system. And if I cars, when you drive, um, you also follow similar patterns of Mm. visibility.
0: You I start. think we, I think we used to call them desire lines. Desire lines, yes. In, in yes. landscape architecture terms, yeah, times.
1: yeah. I mean, desire lines is, is another
0: word for mm. it. it. Is where do you want to go? Where do you want to go? Yeah. What makes what feels right? Yeah, yeah.
1: And you then know, uh, people
0: take a shortcut, and if you haven't designed that shortcut, then you realize you've made a mistake in your design, haven't abs- you? Absolutely. People are crossing a park, yeah, and, and wearing a, wearing a track in a grass pitch, yeah. That's a desire line. That's where people want to go. Absolutely. Mm. And then if you look
1: at this network of desire lines in in different ways, I mean, if you're interested in pedestrian network, you add more details to this model, like underpasses or or footbridges or, you know, these sort of things that you normally remove from a, what we call a strategic model of a city, because you're interested in long distance movement and you Mm. want to kind of understand how these centers work and so on and so
0: forth. So, yes, I mean, the, the technology can be applied to different. So, that, that's the coarse scales. grain, the coarse grain at the, at the grand scale, the city scale. You can analyze the city and understand what parts of the city are best connected, what parts, um, are deserts in terms of connectivity. Then you could also, then you can analyze it at a, at a more, uh, finer grain to actually understand how districts or precincts are working within a city. Totally true. More recently,
1: we realized that the, uh, This model can be applied to very large systems, Mm. such as a country. So we're looking at the entire UK network and trying to kind of uh, understand how a project like high-speed rail Mm. can impact the economy of different regions of the UK.
0: So how do you you compare that to other high-speed rails around the world and understand the data from their performance, or Uh, are you able to predict
1: no, this is, again, more about accessibility of the regions together. Hmm. Uh, so if you put a, a direct link between, say, Birmingham and London, hmm. you're bypassing the entire network. And if you somehow can turn your network into a time-based network, you can measure the distances, the topological distances, if you like, in terms of time. And then by applying a new line, you suddenly change the entire Configuration of a country, yeah, and that means more access to jobs, more access to economic activities for certain
0: areas, and but, that. Would but what change. about what about the areas you bypass when you draw that line? Well,
1: that's the interesting thing. So, so you have it. You have a tool really to look at mm. uh, the impact of this new thing, and mm. and you're totally right. I mean, mm. sometimes we forget about the larger scale impact of these things, negative impacts mm. as well as the. Positives.
2: I mean that that is uh, this is probably what you just said, James, is probably the existential uh, struggle of the 21st century, which is we recognize the growing power of cities Mm. and that cities and city regions are becoming, in many ways, as powerful as nations. Mm. And a city is nothing if not a hub and a network. Mm. That's a very simple way to describe it. And if you are in an area that is being bypassed, Is your fortune in trying to make yourself more attractive so that people connect directly to you? Or is your better strategy to connect to the growing hub of a larger network Mm. and and be associated with that? And Mm. what are the trade-offs? And you can apply this idea to social equality, to economic opportunity. To romantic opportunity, whatever. I mean, Mm. you can use this very, very simple principle Mm. to test this out, Mm. almost uh, like a game, like a a game scenario. And now as city planners, we're starting to think and starting to use a little bit more of Kvan's language, which is almost a kind of a digital algorithmic language rather than our usual terminology of conventional placemaking.
0: So in the in the example of London to Birmingham, so there you know hypothetically there'd be there'd be towns that would miss out there, wouldn't there and and regions and what you're saying, Chris, is that they'd have to build a new story, uh-huh. a new narrative for which then to become connected to either Birmingham or London or invite connection the next i guess the next tier down of connection
1: there's also this very local impact of these stations i mean you you connect two major cities together mm. and it's a kind of countrywide decision mm. but then the connection comes to a certain point in the city, and that has a very, very important local impact. Mm. So you're pumping uh, thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people to an area. Mm. How the people are going to behave, how they navigate through the system,
0: mm.
1: how you l- connect this kind of area with other means of transportation that can take people to the right locations. Mm. So that's a kind of very countrywide, uh, global kind of decision to a very local series of decisions that make the whole thing work. Mm. And um, unfortunately, this is kind of ignored in big decision making. Mm. And especially in in city planning, we forget about the impact of these big things
2: on certain areas of the city, which is very important. Mm. Also, just picking up on that point, if you had a toll road and a tavern along a dusty Uh, muddy road uh, 200 years ago, and it's where a horse-drawn carriage might stop and where you might spend the night or have a meal and continue on, there's a certain kind of pattern, settlement pattern, that might have grown up around that tavern. Mm. You then have maybe a 19th century railroad stop at the same tavern point, now connecting a hinterland that's maybe dozens or maybe uh, a couple hundred miles uh, in length. And that may presume certain kinds of urban patterns around that same point. But if you now have a high-speed network that's connecting millions of people to each other through big hubs, and there is a high-speed station, for example, at that same node, you can imagine that the settlement pattern in a 21st century high-speed node might be different around the node than in a 19th century one or an 18th or 17th century node. But is our planning keeping up with that Mm. and we still see all over the world and UK is a perfect example of this you have a high-speed rail network that the country has invested in to the tune of billions and billions of dollars you have a high-speed rail node which may be effectively the equivalent of one or two billion dollars of investment but you still have single-family homes uh, and low-density development around that node is that really the best way for that region to take advantage of its connectivity. Is it working hard enough to connect to the rest of the system or not? That's our challenge in the I 21st century. In, in fact,
1: I have a, an example of this, which is one of these um, high-speed rail stations outside Birmingham. It's near the airport. It's in middle of nowhere, almost. But it's close to uh, International Exhibition Center and, and, then, and uh, the, the airport itself, airport and, and then another railway station there. So... Globally, in terms of connections, is is well connected. But if you look at around it, you know, is there's nothing. I mean, the people have to kind of drive 20 minutes to get there, and the road network is nowhere comparable to the kind of bigger network that this place is connected to. So we we really have to kind of come up with um, new ways of understanding these new centers.
0: But o- over time, won't businesses be opportunistic and take advantage of this wonderful? resource that the government has put there in, in
1: theory a, yes but then i, I people, would think so yeah but the people who go there and work or leave or, you know they, they are human beings mm. and, and they need places to live in yeah like normal cities yeah would that sustain for a long time if if you put these high density of of employment and and residential units around a hub like that mm. would that sustain for a long time I personally don't think so, because mm. you, you need to create urban conditions yeah. that can endure for, yeah. for hundreds
2: of years, like what we discussed about London. You know, this is a, you're, you're starting to tiptoe into a very, I'm interesting, tiptoeing. Uh, <laughs> very interesting and very uh, charged discussion. So the kind of connectivity that Kevan and I and you instinctively embrace is one where we see a great deal of opportunity when we're connected to all sorts of people, mm-hmm. many different people, mm-hmm. and, and sometimes people who are thousands of miles away. Yeah. If you are within walking distance of a high-speed train line to an international airport that can connect you to parts of India or China with a single direct long-haul flight, that's an amazingly well-connected point. That's, that's about an argument about diversity. Mm. But as we know, especially in the last year or two of political upheaval, that there's a, there's a counterpoint to all of this which is emphasis on autonomy and solidarity mm, the traditional place that yeah. maybe is less interested in connecting to the mm, rest of the world mm. and we know we instinctively feel in our bones the advantages that come from a global point of view but for a lot of people that kind of connectivity is threatening is threatening mm. it's heartbreaking it's moving too quickly and they see there's a backlash. They feel a little bit helpless. And when you deny your helplessness, you lash out. And we've seen uh, political manifestations of that lashing out all over the world. So this issue about connection and bypass is a very interesting one. And it's not always the case that bypassed populations are unhappy. Some people want to be bypassed Mm. if they feel they're more in control. But if you're more in control, of a world that
0: is increasingly small and limited, is that good? This is an existential issue. It is. But at least that's choice then, you know? You, you can either choose to live in the bypass, romantic, nostalgic place, mm-hmm. or you can choose to live in the hyper-diverse, hyper-connected mm-hmm. place, you know? And I think that diversity yeah. in a place like the United Kingdom is a really good thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And are there also hybrids? Can you find ways to create
2: areas of solidarity of uh, locality in a network that is highly diverse and yeah. highly connected. Yeah. That's our challenge now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not the usual placemaking anymore. It's, yeah. a, it's about this balance.
0: So Kevin, now I wanna learn from you is how can we use data and analyze the performance of different cities and different precincts within cities around the world to actually help us design and modify our current cities to perform better? Yes. Um, do, do, um, you, do you do that? Is that? It? Yes,
1: this is exactly what we do. And as I explained, it, it starts uh, from a model of a spatial connections, a spatial mm. accessibility. But then we try to kind of link the, that spatial structure with other fundamental layers mm. of information, such as densities,
0: land, land, use. land uses, yeah. public this, transport system.
1: Yeah. And then get closer to a more integrated model. So it's not a pure spatial model, it's a more integrated model. Mm. So the model is responsive to things that you do, say, uh, you know, in the middle of Nova, you you create a town. Mm. What would be the impact of that town? Mm. Or what if I put a lot of densities around my new station, a, a TOD, Mm. transport oriented design kind of project, what would be the impact of that? Mm. So we can see not only the, the connections, yeah. we can see also the strength of the connections. Yeah. And then we can move on. At We, we just had a, a quick chat with Chris about uh, modeling intangible issues. Can the intangible issues also be integrated into this model, mm. such as uh, cultural diversities mm. and, and you know these sort of things that's probably the most difficult thing in this approach but uh, you can do
0: it I'm sure it has got to be an
1: algorithm exactly you have to be able to map it at, and if you map it mm. you can somehow link it spatially yep. to your network this, this is the kind of the beauty of the network approach mm. but then you have to find a way of finding the, the data and information on those specific issues which sometimes is, is a challenging thing it's, and
0: time consuming I would think and access to that data is, is, I imagine, quite challenging in many... In,
1: in particular part of the world, I mean, we, we, we are living in an age of data and information, explosion of data and, and information. But quite surprisingly, even in, in most advanced places, you find very little information on things that are very, very important. This evidence-based approach in urban planning and urban design or architecture is the right way to go. Because... Mm. It would reduce the risk. Mm. It it would inform the designers and and planners, as well as decision makers. Mm. I mean, how do I know if a project is good for me, if I'm a a mayor or a decision maker Mm. in in a city? If there are ways of looking at the evidence Mm. instead of uh, perceptions and instead of um, Mm. opinions, then I can make better decisions. Yeah. So I think uh, better data. Good data, accurate data, as well as models that can bring the data into something tangible, yeah. understandable, and something that can provide prediction for future. What if I put a new street here? Mm. Or what if I put a high-density development there? What would be the impact? If mm. I can model that mm. and demonstrate the impact of that, mm. I think it would be a great help for
2: almost everyone.
0: Yeah, great. Chris?
2: I want to pick up a little bit on, on this one point. I think it's absolutely a fascinating one. I think the biggest issue for us is no longer do we have enough data. I think is it's do we have a point of view? What are we trying to solve? You know, when we design infrastructure, we're often measuring inputs. How many kilometers of track are we going to put down? We want to solve a problem That is directly related to the infrastructure that we're putting in. If we put in uh, these kilometers of track and put in three stations, can we relieve congestion, for Mm -hmm. example? Mm -hmm. But we were chatting earlier before. What happens if you are measuring an outcome, not an input? So, for example, if you want to raise the reading age of 10-year-olds in a city and you want the city to perform better on standardized tests, what combination of infrastructure inputs should you do mm. in order to get that intangible mm.
0: output. Mm. So whether it's education, yeah. public right. open space, right. the balance between exactly. you know, exactly. exercise, and obesity. So, and so
2: maybe in this particular case, it's not a question of, gosh, uh, uh, where's the data for it? There's, mm-hmm. there's so much data out there that could be used as proxies for all sorts of things. But we need to make a kind of general Correct. field theory about how, how a zebra and a fish are related. How is a reading score and mobility for Mm -hmm. example Mm -hmm. or
0: infrastructure budgets how are they related
2: Mm
0: -hmm. it's also then picking the areas that are performing the best in the world and actually learning what the characteristics are of those areas so you know if it's areas in japan with the highest standardized test scores and the highest livability and happiness index Mm -hmm. so what, what what are the key characteristics of those areas yeah and what, why Why are they achieving that? What's the mix? What's the special source? Well, you know,
2: there's also a d- completely different, and I myself am having to unlearn a lot of things. So let's just <laughs> say we think there's a, a basket of of places that are performing the way we want, say, mm. a nice place in Japan that we really, really like. Mm. And we want to get the outcomes that Japan seems to have in these cities. So our first instinct is to kind of analyze spatially, physically, what those cities look like and try to reproduce them in some way here. But maybe that's the wrong solution. Mm. Maybe what we should be doing is saying, well, wait a minute, what's really creating the innovation are those Japanese people themselves. Mm. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's sort of left-handed Japanese who were on the rowing team for three years who know how to speak (laughs) French. And maybe what we do Rather than spending billions of dollars replicating a part of a Japanese city, maybe we just try to attract a dozen you know, left-handed Japanese rowers who speak French to come and live in a part of our city that wants to grow. And we do anything we can to keep them there and make mm-hmm. them happy. Mm-hmm. So they, in turn, attract more people like them. Mm-hmm. And they, in turn... Demand or induce changes to the physical environment. It's kind of
0: like a bottom-up approach. So it's a mindset. So people with a mindset yeah. that are driving these yeah. great cities. Because the in the end, so it's more about the people than the, the physical course. infrastructure.
2: And and the big thing that I've learned, and I and now I have to be a little bit more modest about what our own potentials are. You know, people are not attracted to great neighborhood planning. People are attracted to other people. Mm. And they will go to where those people are, whatever it is. Mm. So the question is, do you start with a planning and you hope that people come? Or do you start with the people and you kind of adapt the planning around them? Mm. You know, it's a different way to think about things.
0: It is. We also ask all our guests, if I gave you a magic wand and you could apply anything, any characteristics from any of your favorite cities around the world to your favorite city, which we both said is London, what would that magic wand apply to London? Mm.
1: I am thinking about public transport, and uh, we really need to enhance public transport here. Just to maintain the, all the good things that we talked about. Because your,
0: your public, your tube system here is one hundred and one hundred ten years old. One hundred and ten years old. Yeah, I mean, I mean one of the oldest in the world. And but look at the foresight one hundred and ten years ago, though, to put in this incredible network.
1: Absolutely amazing. But then we are living in twenty first century, and and then we, you know the cost of updating everything is enormous. And we talked about this kind of medieval. Streets, organic streets mm. that cannot accommodate uh, no. a huge yeah. amount of traffic. So, yeah. even if all the cars go electric, we still have a problem. Yes. So, I think for me, that magic wand would be about creating a twenty-first century public transport system that can
2: maintain the greatness of
0: the city. Yeah. Now, Chris, magic wand.
2: I think I am thinking about social inclusion mm-hmm. more and more, mm-hmm. and that—that's the aim. That's the goal. But I guess for my magic wand, it would be the things that I could wave at that would get us on a path towards more social inclusion. And I would double down on, on what Kavan said is you know focusing on public transport. But the magic wand for me is urban density. Mm-hmm. I think all the great things that we like about London now, to a certain extent, have to do with the fact that... Well, not all of them, but many of them have to do with the fact that it's relatively undense compared to a lot of its global peers, Mm -hmm. which makes it charming, I suppose. But it's also a weakness. Mm -hmm. And I can see that if we don't think about density more proactively and increasing urban density and vitality, that we create enormous pockets of scarcity, Mm. which then in turn create exclusivity and are barriers to precisely the resilience and the kinds of populations that we want in the future. Mm. So the unintended consequence of preserving a kind of romantic idea about London may be an unaffordable London that is not inclusive. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a straight line between density and inclusivity so that would be my magic wand
0: yeah that's a a great magic wand to to end on so Chris and Kaven thank you very much it was a great conversation so if you've got any comments hit us with an email at com, and uh, we love your feedback and we very much appreciate it so please send it through great thanks a lot